Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Sometimes there'll be a story that comes out and I'm like, yeah, well, who didn't know that? We're already talking about it. We've been talking about it for days or weeks or or months or whatever it is. And, And somehow it's news to everybody else when it comes out. I don't think anybody here, anybody who's a part of this show, has any question as to whether or not the withdrawal from Afghanistan was avoidable when I talk about the cluster, you know what, and that was the withdrawal from Afghanistan. It was all avoidable. Could you have avoided the deaths of 13 service members? Absolutely, you could have. That attack that took place at the Abbey Gate. It could have been avoided. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Always a pleasure to be with you guys. Appreciate you bringing me into your lives. 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. The Pentagon has been saying, oh, unavoidable, unavoidable. 170 Afghan civilians dead, 13 U.S. service members dead. But documents show from the Pentagon that they knew where ISIS-K operatives expected to play a role in the attack. They knew where they were stationed. They knew that they were staging at a hotel two to three kilometers west of the airport. The Lieutenant General Chris Donahue reaching out to the Taliban, asking them to conduct an assault on ISIS targets at the hotel, but they wouldn't do it. Well, trusting the Taliban is a mistake. You say to me, well, see, that's because of Trump. You can make that argument. I'm not going to tell you not to make that argument. But it has nothing to do with how the withdrawal went, the lack of communication, the non-communication between defense and state. That is all the administration's fault. That is all Joe Biden's fault, Joe Biden's team. And no one got fired. As one of the Gold Star family fathers stated, not a single general slapped down their, their stars and said, nope, I can't be a part of this anymore. They all just said, huh, and then went out to lunch or did whatever it is that they do. No one got fired. And we have a media that doesn't give a damn. Cover it up, cover it up, cover it up. There, there is nothing about this that should not be remembered for November. It should be a discussion of every single Republican nominee and whoever the, the candidate is, this should be nonstop. You murdered 13 Americans, Joe Biden. You did it. You didn't have to do it. Well, yeah, the, the, the Taliban was running uh, the country and, and uh, Donald Trump had signed these deals. You have a responsibility to get people out safely. You're the one who didn't engage in the communication. You're the one who didn't engage in the coordination. And it happened under your watch. That's it. Leaders understand and take responsibility for their failures. Not Joe Biden, not this guy who is not a leader. No one in this administration is a leader. You know, we talk about drain the swamp and we talk about the DOJ. Let's not forget the Department of Defense and let's not forget the Department of State. You got to be firing people like it's your job. You got to get this despicable, weak-minded mindset out of the way and get people who take responsibility for when they fail and they take responsibility and give praise to those who succeed. You need real leaders, and man, we don't have them. Uh, You can find more about this story over at TonyKatz.com. I've got it up there, the story from the people at News Nation. But we knew this. We knew that Biden failed. This was not news to us. We just have more backup now for what we already knew. This is Tony Katz today. You gotta be a 
have Jake Funk on the Colts. Oh, no, no, no. He uh, gets waived by the Indianapolis Colts. And so does Huntley. And it makes you wonder who the running back is. Oh, we didn't trade Jonathan Taylor, but Jonathan Taylor is on the physically unable to perform list. Uh, clearly, uh, what has happened is, is that he looked at his bank account and said, I can't get up in the morning. And so now he's unable uh, to play football. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. JMV joins us from 93.5107.5 The Fan. He is the voice of sports in Indiana. I mean, all sorts of of stories, you know, was uh, Jonathan Taylor going to go uh, to the Dolphins? They had an interest. ESPN reporting uh, that the Packers tried to get access to Jonathan Taylor. Uh, that didn't work out. How many teams really tried to make a pitch? They weren't willing to um, give up, clearly, the first rounder. But what were they willing to give up, and what's the Colts' position? Well, the Colts' position is they set the price tag so high they knew nobody was going to get to it. Thus, they had no real interest in dealing Jonathan Taylor in that timing or that fashion. Um, so they aimed for the moon. You know, I was told, um, you know, yesterday that they had asked the Dolphins about some some current players like Jalen Waddle, which there's no way in the world that, that the Dolphins would have traded their wide receiver uh, in that fashion or any fashion for Jonathan Taylor. So the Colts kind of were playing out a plan here. Uh, and their plan is not to have dealt him to start the season and then ultimately put him on PUP. I don't know to the benefit of, of the Colts from this standpoint because Jonathan Taylor, and I've, I've told you this all along, I, I think if he were to sign a new deal and he was happy with it and he was extended, I think tomorrow he would practice, meaning I don't think that he's injured, meaning I think that this is nothing more than a hold-in right now. Now, you could ask the questions as to why the Colts, instead of putting on PUP and paying him for the first, uh, certainly to start the season, and on PUP for the first four weeks of the season, you know, why they couldn't just start trying to find him for that. But uh, that's been my theory for the most part, and I think that theory is accurate. Um, Maybe he still gets dealt before the October 31st deadline to trade in the NFL. But right now, unfortunately, this soap opera continues moving forward with either side here really not making much of a buzz. And all it does is is really hurt not just the team, Tony, but certainly the growth aspect of Anthony Richardson, which is most important. That is what is really getting hurt out of all this. Deion Jackson, Evan Hall, that's who the Colts will, will start with. It makes one wonder, because Zach Moss has the, the broken arm, um, this would be a little bit less of a thing if Zach Moss, who we got in that trade with uh, Naeem Hines, uh, ha- was was healthy. This would be a bit of a different conversation because you could at least feel that he has some experience. You 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 did trade for him. You, you liked something he has to offer, and you could at least put a little bit on his shoulders uh, to 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 run. But certainly, you also thought about it as being a compliment, a guy being able to spell Jonathan Taylor, Deion Jackson, Evan Hall. Yes, uh, my Jake Funk was was waived. Um, 
where is this running game right now? Like, are we are we going to get thirty yards a game out of this out of this group? Are these people who they're going to hold back to be just some extra blocking while Anthony Richardson gets used to the pace of of an NFL game? What's going to be the role? Is there any real running attack that a defense has to worry about from the Colts? No, not really, not at all. By the way, Jake Funk is going to go back to the practice squad, from what I've heard. So he'll still be around. You'll still have the funk, but he just won't be until there's another injury, which it's the Colts, and you know there will be. Then uh, he'll be elevated to the 53-man if there is that running back injury. But, no, here's what I think, Tony. I think that broken arm of Zach Moss, maybe it's healing, and I don't have any insider knowledge to it. This is just my belief that it's healing quicker than what they have thought and kind of makes me wonder if they believe that Moss is going to be good to go. For week number one, that would seem to be a bit of a stretch, but I would watch out for that possibility. And the fact that they only kept four wide receivers, uh, which they're going to go to the waiver wire, I'm sure, and start signing wide receivers. But truly, well, wait, I, mean, you, I, mean, I wasn't even going to get into wide receivers yet. We have five. Yeah. We've got Pittman yeah. and McKenzie, Pearson, du- oh, Doolin's on injured reserve. You're right. We have four. We have yeah, four wide receivers. There's, there's nothing more Chris Ballard in the world than that. Nothing more Chris Ballard. The most important skill position outside of quarterback in the NFL. And the Colts have four dudes, four of these dudes, that can't get any separation whatsoever. Again, to the benefit or lack thereof to Anthony Richardson, that's exactly how you look at it. So they're going to be very active on the waiver wire. Tony, by the way, we're talking about a football team that has zero depth on the offensive line. Absolutely none. That's what they're going to have to do. I think they kept like 19 defensive tackles and 15 tight ends, so they have those. Those are very plentiful, but with the the true skill positions in the NFL, they are lacking right now, and all that does, again, is hinder the growth of a rookie quarterback, which is, I think, going to be major unfortunate for this team to start the season. Talking to JMV from 93.5107.5, the fan. I'm, I'm staring at the depth chart right now as ESPN uh, has it. And it, it's, it, you know, we, we didn't mention in that receiver core, Josh Downs, uh, who, the rookie third round yeah. uh, pick, who I, I think everybody likes, but I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't see the performance in the preseason that makes me go, this guy is a player. And while I like Alec Pierce tremendously, I haven't seen the performance at all in the yeah. last year plus that makes me say, he's a player but there is no there is nobody outside of, of Josh Downs when you take a look at left tackle they've got a, a backup and that's it left guard a backup and that's it center they don't have a backup because Danny Pinter has the broken ankle and there is no backup Will Freeze is questionable on at right tackle you've got Braden Smith and then Blake Freeland who they just picked up Jake Witts on uh, injured reserve you are absolutely right that this offense, we're three deep at quarterback, and we aren't deep anywhere else. Saying you're going to go to the waiver wire is an understatement. Who is out there that the Colts should be looking at at the skill position of wide receiver and then in to, to give us some backup in this offensive line? Well, and, and that's what's funny about this entire thing because if, if you looked at it, Tony, it, this arguably is the worst roster makeup in the NFL. And we know what Arizona's doing right now. Arizona's tanking because Arizona wants Caleb Williams. But if you're looking at this Colts roster, it looks like an expansion team type of roster right now, the way it's put together. I mean, it looks like a team that that doesn't necessarily care about winning this year, and that may very well be so. Certainly we've talked about it in terms of, you know, the guidance and the the maturation of their rookie quarterback. 
But that's exactly what this roster looks like. As far as names are concerned, yeah, I don't know about names. I can just give you the positions that they're going to have to find. And it's amazing to me that you put a roster together and you can find no more than four wide receivers that you like living in a world of the NFL to where you win after your quarterback with tremendous amount of wide receiver talent. That's what scares me the most about this. You know, we talked about Jonathan Taylor and the lack of running game and all that. That's going to be certainly a big deal. But the thing that scares me the most, and you brought this up regarding Alec Pierce. You brought this up regarding Josh Downs. You haven't in the preseason seen them do much. Now, people that cover the Colts say in these practice settings, they see it. And it's been much different than what we see in these preseason games. But, Tony, as far as Alec Pierce is concerned, he has some moments, but not nearly enough. And that really holds true for everybody that Anthony Richards is going to be throwing to. And that's what worries me the most. It's not so much that the ball is not going to be there. It's going to be forced oftentimes. But these guys can't create any space offensively for Anthony Richardson to throw. So when he forces that, even more than he's going to force it already anyway with that inexperience, that is what is going to lead you down an incredible turnover path. And that's why you want the most support for him as possible. And clearly, as of right now, the Colts do not have that. I think it's interesting that you brought up the Arizona Cardinals because they may be one of the only teams that's in a weirder spot uh, than, than yeah. the Colts. You, they, Kyler Murray is clearly out, and you decide after that preseason and just hey, the guy's got a history. Colt McCoy, sorry, no thanks. We'll go with Josh Dobbs uh, to, to be our quarterback. The whole thing is is super, super weird. But that would is the conversation of proactively, you brought this up, proactively tanking a season. Be like, you know what? This isn't going to be it. The Colts never talk like that because the Colts are never honest, as, as, as we've discussed. And if people think that's too harsh of a criticism, I, I don't care. It, it's true. They're not honest with, with the fan base. They're not honest at all. Have the Colts already thrown in the towel for this season? Just keep Anthony Richardson upright. Don't treat him like an Andrew Luck pinata. And let's get into let's get another season uh, out of the way so we can you know have a chance for the future. Now, there are two ways to look at this, and I think that's logical, too, because that's exactly how it looks. It looks like, hey, all we care about is this quarterback maturation and growth and really nothing more. The other thing could be this. You bring in Shane Steichen, and you turn over the offensive keys to him, and he's probably – these guys These guys have coached Tony, as you well know. They all have incredible egos, and they can do all this on their own. This may be, in his mind, the type of team that he wants to put together because he believes offensively he can have success and growth with it, which can be dangerous. I mean, it really can. We've seen it blow up in the Colts' face before. I, I, to me, it's number one, though. I just don't think there is an emphasis on winning, certainly as much as there is an emphasis on watching your quarterback develop and no they're not going to come out and say it because you're right I mean, you can pick and choose you know what they've said in the past they said that they've been transparent and certainly that is uh not nearly the percentage in which you would like to see accurate in their full transparency of what they're doing but yeah that's i think it's more about the quarterback certainly than it is winning right now and they're not going to tell their fan base that but it should be really easy for the fan base to pick that out in a lineup in the first place because that's exactly what it looks like because that's exactly what it is. 
Just going around uh, the NFL just a little bit, uh, not only Jonathan Taylor with the contract weirdness, Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow is is not practicing with uh, the, the Cincinnati Bengals. He had the injury in, like, I think it was the second series of, of uh, when, when camp opened up. He didn't play in, in, in the preseason. He had already said that even though I don't have the contract that I want yet, I'm showing up, I'm going to be playing, I'm going to be practicing, I'm going to uh, do this. Everybody's saying that he's he's back to being uh, healthy. Coach Zach Taylor says he's healthy. Are we going to see uh, this season open up for the Bengals without Joe Burrow? No, nah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, obviously, here's what's going to happen. I mean, you bring up a great point regarding quarterbacks. This is going to be more and more the quarterbacks are going to dictate what any teams are going to be doing. Uh, this is going to happen more and more. I mean, doing kind of like what we see in the NBA – like James Harden, for example. And I never know why, because I don't know why you'd want this guy on your team in the first place. But James Harden has always tried to dictate what he was doing, where he was going, where he wanted to play, how he thought he was going to bring a certain substance to a team to win, which normally went complete in reversal and they lose. But you're going to see more and more of that in terms of the NFL. And again, you know, the CBA and the NFL, the players' union, the owners have, have all the leverage in the NFL, whereas the players do in the NBA, especially the elite-level players. But I think you're going to see a little bit of a slide that in the NFL with these quarterbacks being able to dictate really what they want to do uh, from season to season. And maybe not, not move from team to team, but again, monetarily speaking, I think they're going to develop year after year a little bit more power with this. I don't think Joe Burrow is going to miss any time whatsoever. But you talk about if you want to make a statement now, you certainly can. I think a lot of these elite-level quarterbacks are going to find a little bit of leverage at points, um, maybe at the start of the season, maybe midseason, maybe in the offseason, where you know they can also dictate a little bit more about what is going to go on around them by virtue of the leverage they have as being the most important position in the world of sports today. In the AFC South, we'll bring it back uh, closer to us. The Texans, we open up, of course, against the Jaguars uh, and the Tennessee Titans. Um, Nothing, I mean, Jacksonville seems well set, uh, especially in in terms of of quarterback. uh, And and at Tennessee, um, while Malik Willis is is there, Will Levis is also there, um, it still seems to be Ryan Tannehill's a uh, uh, job to to lose, at least as I see it, at least as how it's it's played out. And of course, you get, still get to hand the ball to Derrick Henry. Um, is, is this the Titans' uh, division to win? No, it's Jacksonville. Jacksonville should have Tony the type of season. Remember back when Peyton Manning was with the Colts, and you know it was a foregone conclusion that they would win twelve games and run roughshod over the rest of the division in the South. That's exactly the type of season that Jacksonville should have this year and i'm not suggesting that you know they're an elite level team in the afc i just consider the talent within the afc south everywhere else but in jacksonville however you know there's always that issue as to whether or not jacksonville is going to be ready for prime time i will say this going from the clown show that was uh, certainly uh, instructed by one urban meyer to doug peterson you know we saw a drastic change there this past year and they really only won late in the season. They had a couple of moments late in the season, and one, you know, at home against the Chargers, to where they looked really good. But within the division itself, the AFC South, it should be Jacksonville's to win, and it should be, I think, in dominant fashion, kind of comparatively speaking, to those years where Peyton Manning was directing things for the Colts, and it was again a foregone conclusion that they were going to win it, win it going away. It should be Jacksonville's situation 
to do just that this year. JMV, the voice of sports in Indiana. I appreciate you as always. Find everything at TonyCats.com. This is Tony Katz today. When we take a look at the economy and we take a look at the fact that we're spending more uh, for, for everything, the, the question is what causes this, right? What causes uh, the the inflation, and of course, as we've discussed, it spending causes inflation. Too much money in the system, but it's not just that. It's too much money in the system and not enough stuff to purchase. There's not enough stuff on the shelves. That's the issue, and so therefore, the price of things on the shelves goes up. Supply and demand being very real, so your dollar is worth less because you don't have the competition. You don't have other places where you can spend your money. This is inflation. Now, who's responsible for that inflation? The people who are spending too much cash, too, putting too much cash in the system, or not being able to get enough things on the shelves. That's a conversation about China. And that's a conversation about the Biden policies. And it leads us to, well, what I think is exactly the question that I started with. Who is actually messing with this economy? Tony Katz. That's my name, in case I didn't introduce myself. Dr. Matt Will joins us, economist at the University of Indianapolis. And I am spending a lot of time talking about this economy, uh, Dr. Matt Will. I'm spending a lot of time uh, seeing what it is that gets said by this administration when people like Corinne Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, want to tell me things like this. Obviously, the president travels across the country uh, pretty regularly to talk about invest in how he's investing in America, how he's lowering costs for Americans. That is one of the, as he speaks about binomics, lowering costs for Americans uh, is clearly one of uh, uh, one of his top priorities. So you'll continue to hear from the president about this particular issue and other ways that he, uh, that uh, binomics is working for American families and the economy as well. Bidenomics, working for American families, working for Americans, building this economy from uh, the middle out, right? That, that, that's always it. He's paraphrasing. You know, he's cribbing uh, Silicon Valley there, uh, the, the show, uh, doing things from the middle out. Uh, but this, this, this conversation about drug prices and how he's going to now negotiate, Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, with these drug companies, specifically five of the 10 drugs he mentioned are diabetes-based drugs, type 2 diabetes-based drugs, insulin things, and, and, and other things for, 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 for blood sugars. Isn't that, and I believe this is how you see it, if I understand your work, uh, isn't that going to be not helping the, the average American, but in the long run, hurting them greatly? You know, Tony, let, let me change the phrasing. I don't like what you said. You said it's negotiating. He's not negotiating. It's called price fixing. When one entity has dominant purchasing power, when one entity like the federal government can step in and mandate the price of anything, that is called price fixing. It's illegal. If any other company did it, Tony, people would be thrown in jail. But the government is doing and they can get away with it. And, and let me tell you this. He is making a false statement. So he's going to mandate price fix the price of insulin and other products. The problem isn't that. There is a problem in the, in the, in the drug market, Tony. It's called insulin rebates, and we, we should get into it. And CVS Caremark is a major culprit of this. But all they're doing is they're going to fix the prices. Now, Tony, what's the consequence of that? 
The consequence of fixing prices is to reduce the amount of money that a company like Lilly can invest. It cost approximately $2.3 billion, Tony, $2.3 billion to make a new drug. So we're going to say to these pharmaceutical companies, I'm sorry, you can't make any more drugs because you can't make a profit on it. You can't recover your $2.3 billion. Tony, Lilly's two top drugs, Trulicity, is a drug for insulin. Uh, Verzania is a drug for breast cancer. So what, we should say, I'm sorry, don't do any more research on, on insulin, on diabetes or breast cancer? And we should note, if we're talking about Eli Lilly uh, specifically, which is something near and dear to us because we're both in the Indianapolis area, this is a stock price that went from about 140 150 when Dave Ricks, uh, the CEO, took over to a stock price that when I last looked, uh, full disclosure, I don't own any uh, Lilly stock, over $500 a share. They have had absolutely monumental and massive growth over the the years and it is the stockholder the people just like you and me who have benefited uh, uh from that even in these turbulent times the price has done extremely well compared uh to to the rest of the marketplace your argument is lily could be one of those people negatively impacted specifically the people who own stock in lily because of these moves that are made possible by the inflation reduction act no, let me no forget about the shareholders and let me be full disclosure. I own shares of Eli Lilly and I benefited from that price increase. But the price is going up because the market, you and me and every investor thinks it's a good company. And they are a good company. They're a great company. But Tony, that is not as a result of high drug prices. Let me give you one piece of information. Eli Lilly, their return on assets, that's the amount of profit they make on every dollar they invest, Tony, is only 13.2%. That's pretty good. But 13.2% over four years, that's the average over four years, Tony. That's not a ton of money. It's good. It shows that they're a well-managed company and they're profitable, but that's not gouging. Tony, this is absurd. The gouging is coming from what we call CVS Caremark and what they call insulin rebates. They fixed the price, not Lilly. Lilly actually announced earlier this year that they're going to cap, cap at $35, the cost for uninsured people who need insulin. That's pretty impressive. So this is a company that's not gouging consumers. They don't need President Biden walking in and fixing their prices because that's just going to harm people who have breast cancer, who need further medications developed in the future. But the argument that gets made, and, and I don't I don't think you'll find many Americans who disagree with, with this baseline conversation, sir. Talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, Man, uh, this stuff costs a lot. That You're not going to find people who disagree with that conversation. This stuff costs a lot. It costs less in other parts of the world. How can we make it cost less? It, it, the, the argument that I put forward regarding development, that you're putting forward regarding incentive to develop, well, these products are being sold in other places around the globe, and people are paying less for them. So Americans do say... What's the deal here? Why are we the only ones getting hosed? Well, okay, Tony, there's two parts to this. I, let's talk about the hosing part in a moment. But, but I want to focus on something that people don't understand. And you always say it's okay to get into the weeds. So I'm going to get into the weeds. Go ahead. CVS Caremark is a middleman. So when Lily sells insulin through your local pharmacy, they go through this middleman. This middleman has a system that requires Lily to give them a rebate. 
if you want to get on their list of approved drugs, so if your employer, Tony, if they want to offer Lilly drugs, Lilly must agree to do a kickback, a rebate to the middleman in order to get on their list. That requires that Lilly pay offer at a higher price so they can pay this rebate back to the middleman. That is where the price is coming in. Lilly has begged the government for relief so they don't have to go through a middleman, so they can sell you drugs directly and not go through this. If you want to get on the list, you are held hostage by this middleman. That is price fixing, and the Medicare program that Biden is producing is even more price fixing. We're all getting hosed, Tony, but it's by the people that are fixing the prices. It's not by the pharmaceutical manufacturers. That is not. They're only making a 13.2% return on their assets, Tony. But, of course, uh, they're us. the ones who take the hit. Big pharma, big oil, big this, big – It's it's always, when Andrew Breitbart first started his websites back in the day, it was to be a play on all of those things. That's why it was big journalism and big government and, and all that other stuff. Uh, so – so the the issue here is is what you describe as 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 price fixing. Um, at what moment do uh, the companies in question turn to the Biden administration, to whom they've all donated to, and say, "You realize what you're about to do to the country, right? You realize how bad this is going to get, or is that the plan to then move forward towards a socialized medicine regime?" Well, you know, Tony, I think the pharmaceutical companies have made a big political mistake. you got to remember, way back when they were de- developing Obamacare, they were all in. They thought, this is the lesser of two evils. So they put their money on Obamacare, and they got burned. They're trying to put their money into Biden care, and they get burned. They're not doing what they have to do politically. They're doing what they need to do from running a business, and they're doing a great job at it, Tony. The innovative products. You know, again, Lilly is capping the prices for their own products for uninsured individuals to help them out, but they're not going about it the right way. They've got to fight this socialized medicine. They have to fight the, you know, the bureaucratic middleman that's help that's fixing prices and losing them profits so that they can garner those 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 rebates. So I think they're going about it politically wrong. I think they have a right business strategy. They have a wrong political strategy. So now let's move it off of uh, some of this drug pricing, which is absolutely going to have, as you see it, an effect on the American economy. And move over uh, to, to China. Let me show you a, a couple of things here. Uh, this w- was, was Fox News. You have the Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo, saying U.S. businesses complaining that China is becoming uninvestable. Then you have the Secretary of Commerce in China. And Raimondo's China, according to the Wall Street Journal, offers glimmer of hope to battered U.S. businesses. I think this is a conversation of a battered China economy. You have these two major real estate companies that are going belly up. Already one has filed for uh, uh, bankruptcy protection here in, in the United States. Billions of dollars lost in building these ghost cities the way China has decided to invest in its infrastructure, learning nothing from Japan, which has had 30 years of stagnation and now they're starting to enter this because there's nothing left to build no apartments left to build no bridges left to build you have some of the poorest uh, 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 provinces in China where the the GDP per capita is 7200 US dollars a person and those provinces have 11 airports one province $7200 GDP per capita 
and I have 11 airports. Uh, so you take a look at those two things where businesses are telling Raimondo that China's uninvestable. And now, as the Wall Street Journal puts it, there's a glimmer of hope because she went to visit. What's your take on what China's doing and what Raimondo is saying or what they're saying to Raimondo? Misreporting. Tony, it's misreporting, a glimmer of hope. What is she doing over there? I believe that what's happening is it's just a, hey, I'm an important person. I'm, an ex- you know, I'm a big shot in the Biden administration. I'm going to go visit China. The, the fact is that she should be shining a light on the fact that China has been building these ghost cities, that U.S. companies have invested in Chinese uh, sovereign wealth funds. They've invested in these construction, that there's a bubble bursting in China and it's going to have a ripple effect. What she should be doing is saying, U.S. investors, get out of China. Don't put your money into Chinese investment funds. Don't invest in Chinese real estate. This bubble is here. It is bursting. But instead, she's trying to create this perception that things are great. Tony, that's a lie. This, con- this administration continues to provide economic lies. There is not this rosy scenario in China right now. It is very pessimistic. It is not good. And she shouldn't be encouraging U.S. companies to invest in China at the moment. I I, I don't disagree. And and I'm only concerned about the investing in China so far as the American people are going to have to bail out somebody on on Wall Street. But this ties into a, a, a conversation that came up. Where there's, you have this, this well, I think it was uh, CNBC that discussed it. I was trying to remember who said it. That there should be more pressure put on the regional banks to ensure they're prepared to handle debt in case people are, are defaulting. That's the way I, I took it. And it reminds me of the conversations we've been having uh, regarding how uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and others have treated these regional banks, really putting them on blast, telling them not to lend and putting the squeeze on them. And then you see Silicon Valley Bank as it went under a signature bank in New York. You saw other problems, PacWest having an issue. Um, These China issues, the ripple effects of their economic implosion, does this get down to the regional bank level? Will average Americans start feeling it from the bank level or will they start feeling it from those people who decided to invest in China knowing it was risky have just cost them in their 401k level? Um, both, Tony. And the reason is because individuals are invested in China, whether they know it or not. And so, yes, when the Chinese um, investments go under like Evergrande, when you, this ripples through your 401k, when it ripples through the assets the bank owns. Remember, people have assets in banks. They have investments in banks. And those banks indirectly own China. And so that's what is going to happen to the regional banks. They will be harmed just like the rest of the world will be harmed when the second biggest economy in the world starts going down. And I'm sorry to say regional banks will be impacted just like everybody else. The impact that they are going to get, is that going to be seen in merging Is that going to be seen in collapsing? Is that going to be seen in bailouts that come from whatever Janet Yellen, if she has some personal connection, decides to bail them out? So some people will be okay and some people won't. What's the sign you look for? And I'm not saying that people should have a run on their regional bank. But what is the sign that you're looking for that things are getting tenuous for them? Well, first of all, I don't think there should be a run on the regional banks. I think the regional banks will be impacted, but I believe they've been managing their risk very well. Um, And I said it again. We have investments in China you don't even realize. 
It's in every investment you have. It's in your national bank. It's in your regional bank. But I believe that the regional banks are better positioned to withstand a decrease in asset values that is the result of China's collapse than the national banks, because the regional banks have been managing their risk. So you said it well, Tony. Janet Yellen's friends at the national banks will be bailed out when China collapses. The regional banks will be fine because they manage their own risk. So I'm not that concerned about it from a regional bank standpoint. Dr. Matt Well, economist at the University of Indianapolis. Always appreciate you taking the time uh, to be with us. I'm Tony Katz. So I'm working on updates uh, regarding the storm and, and where the damage is. I, as, as I've said, I, I expect that uh, Florida will have estimates on, on damage tomorrow. And, of course, Georgia as well and in the Carolinas. Exactly how much flooding has this thing uh, left in, in, in its wake? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Always a pleasure. And then Mitch McConnell freezing for a second time. In the middle of a conversation or, or being asked a question, and he just he just freezes. I mean, it's 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 horrifying. In twenty twenty six. That's I mean, he just he tries to answer the question, and then he just goes blank. And he's just staring off into space. Is it a stroke? Whatever, whatever it is. Can't be minority leader anymore. This this just can't work. He's got an issue, and it has to be dealt with when you're in a public life. It really does. I I, I spoke about it earlier. We'll find out more in the next day or two, I'm sure, about his condition. Find everything I do at TonyKatz.com. And AJ, who runs the board, uh, heading off to uh, get into the next phase of his career. All the best, AJ. Good man. Good man, good family, good people. Wish you nothing but the absolute best. Tomorrow, everyone, take care.